Okay, so this morning, uh, well, I'll tell you what our title is in, at the moment, uh, in a moment, but um, if your brain is in gear, tell me, if you can, what truths most encouraged you or have stuck with you from last night's session? Is there any particular nugget of truth that stuck in your mind? Yes, Lily. Uh-huh. Nice. Yes. I, yeah, I agree. Super encouraging. Brilliant. Thank you. Anything else? Well, you said about um, how he was raised for our justification, um, and it means that he's been raised to the right hand of God for our everlasting justification. That was really good. Excellent. Thank you, Mim. That is brilliant. Righteousness being always before God, because Christ is always before God. It's really encouraging. It's in the day-to-day, -day, you just see your own heart and you're like... Yeah. Oh, yeah. Thanks, Liz. Excellent. Okay, great. Thank you for those. Um, what great reminders. It is an incredible thing, isn't it, that Christ actually rose from the dead. And um, already... Just being reminded of some things there. We've seen a number of ways that his resurrection impacts and affects our lives. Not least in that assurance that it gives us about who Christ is and what he's actually accomplished for us. But we've certainly not exhausted the riches of his resurrection and its effects just yet. And if your mind was somewhat stretched or even blown, trying to take in some of those glorious truths last night from God's words, well... Prepare to have your mind blown once again by the verse we are going to begin with this morning. Please turn in your Bible to Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. We're going to spend most of our time in this session in Colossians 3. We'll start with verse 1. Maybe a verse that you're familiar with, but um, I, for me, it's just hit me in a new way in light of what we've been thinking about last night. Because if it wasn't incredible enough to be reminded that Christ has now risen from the dead. Now, in light of his resurrection, just listen to this newsflash from Paul. Colossians 3, verse 1, he says, Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Yes, you, you read that right. You, Christian, have been raised with Christ. That's not perhaps the news we expected so soon after breakfast. Our two sessions today are going to focus on how Christ's resurrection leads incredibly to our own resurrection, but in two stages. So according to the New Testament, there are two stages to our Christian resurrection. One part now and one part in the future. Uh, and so we're going to devote a session to each of those stages. This afternoon, we're going to look at our future physical resurrection that still awaits us one day. Uh, it's what Paul calls the redemption of our bodies in Romans 8.23. So that's this afternoon. But right now we're going to look at our spiritual resurrection. It's the one that, uh, that, if we're Christians, has amazingly already happened to us, as we just saw there in Colossians 3 verse 1. You have, past tense, been raised with Christ. And what we're also going to find is that it's this present spiritual resurrection that is able to empower us even now to live, change and transform lives as Christians. And so the title of this morning's message is Resurrection 
transformation. There we go, up on the screen. So yesterday we looked at assurance, now we're looking at transformation. Um, let me ask you, first of all, what do you think about when you hear words like Christian growth or transformation? What comes to your mind? Just, um, just think to yourself, give it a moment's thought. What, what comes to your mind? What, perhaps come, what goes on in your heart when you hear the words Christian growth, transformation? I wonder perhaps, is it a mixture of hope and eagerness on the one side, coupled with a great big dose of despair and desperation on the other? Almost everyone you speak to, whether they're a Christian or not, wants to be a different or changed or better human being. That's why so many people uh, throughout their lives keep turning over new leaves. That's why so many people make too many New Year's resolutions. It's why the internet is full of video makeovers and lifestyle improvement tutorials. But we all also know the frustration of wanting to change and improve and do better and yet repeatedly fall so far short of where and who we want to be. The problem is that left to ourselves, left to our own resources, we truly have no power or ability to change ourselves for the better, not, not according to God's standards of what is truly better. We don't have that ability within us. So as long as we think that we can transform ourselves, we're like a man who has a great ambition to go flying up amongst the clouds, but he doesn't think to get in an aeroplane because he's too busy strapping on his own homemade wings, running up and down, puffing and panting and flapping his arms like crazy. Trying to change in our own strength will always lead to frustration and disappointment. To truly be transformed, what we need first and foremost is new life within us, which is where we're going to begin then this morning with our headings. So here we go. Number one, we've got four today. New life. The reason we need new life is because of the Bible's stark an honest diagnosis about the state of each one of us before Christ saves us. Uh, turn, kind of keep a finger in Colossians 3, or at least remember where it is. Turn to Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3. So um, just back a little bit in your Bible. Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3. Here's how Paul describes our former state of affairs before we were saved. He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Here Paul lays out the sort of threefold rulership of sin and rebellion in our pre-Christian lives. So whether we recognised it or not at the time, we were once servants and slaves of three things, he says, the world, the flesh and the devil. We were slaves to sin through and through. We were opposed to God, both in our minds and our bodies, our thoughts and our behaviour. And added to that, Paul says, because of our sin, there were consequences, serious consequences. We were children of wrath. We were rightly facing the judgment of a holy and righteous God. It's pretty bad news, isn't it? When you take it all in like that in just a few verses. 
But I haven't mentioned yet the worst of all news that's included right up front in verse 1. Now, I'll maintain the suspense of what it is for a little bit in case you haven't spotted it uh, by telling you a little story. I had to go to the doctors a couple of weeks ago to have just a, a very small lump checked out on my shoulder. And although I wasn't super concerned about it, the thought did go through my head, what if they tell me it's serious? And all sorts of possible diagnoses entered my imagination. I did a bit of Googling. It's never wise, is it, before you go see the doctor? But not for one minute did I imagine that the diagnosis would be so serious as the doctor saying what Paul says here, that I was already dead as I sat before him in his surgery. How utterly hopeless would that have been? He turns to me, I've got to tell you, you're, you're dead. You're already dead. You're a corpse sat before me. Yet that is exactly how Paul describes our former condition before we were rescued by Jesus. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, we were still living and breathing human beings, of course, but spiritually speaking, we were categorically stone-cold dead. We were spiritually dead in our sins. And this, of course, is a key reason why Christianity, why the good news of Christianity is not, here are a list of rules and practices to follow in the hope that you'll become a little bit less dead. That's not the message of Christianity. This message today on transformation has absolutely nothing at all in it about what you and I need to do on our own, apart from Christ, to bring about change in our lives. That would be deadly. The gospel we need is not like paddles to the chest to revive the spiritual heartbeat of the nearly dead. We need a resurrection gospel. We need something. We need someone who can raise us spiritually from the dead. And gloriously, that is exactly what God in his kindness has given to us. So just look again at Ephesians 2. Look at what God has done, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Our God is a God who shows rich mercy to the utterly undeserving. Our God is a God who gives spiritual life to the spiritually stone-cold dead. And he graciously raises every single Christian at the moment they first believe to new spiritual life in Jesus. He has, verse 5, made us alive together with Christ. And he's done it through Christ's resurrection. Look at verse 6. He has raised us up with him. And it's that word with there that's the key. Because the way God saves and raises us is by uniting us with his son. So that where Jesus goes, we go. Wherever he goes, we go because we are united by faith to him. Uh, it's, a, it's a bit like um, a, a brand, brand new, newly conceived baby in a mother's womb, drawing life from its mother. And wherever the mother goes, the baby goes. And so with Jesus, we draw our new life from him. And wherever he goes, because we're in him, we even now go with him. He died to sin, and so in him we also died. 
He rose, and so in him we have also risen to new life. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So we have already been raised to new life with Christ. It's incredible. And it's one of those truths that I think we, we perhaps know, we've heard, we see it in our Bibles, and yet it can just wash over us. It doesn't hit us with the weight with which it should, the, 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 the beauty and the goodness with which it should fall upon us. We have received new life with Christ. And that new life leads, in turn, secondly this morning, to a whole new perspective. So that's our second heading this morning, a new perspective. Let's go back to Colossians 3. Let's hear about this, this new perspective that we now have. Colossians 3 verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So I wonder, do you see what Paul is saying here? He's saying that the Christian is surrounded on all sides by resurrection. There's resurrection in our past and there's resurrection in our future. Both behind us and ahead of us is resurrection. It's like when you trek out of the drab bleakness of the city, which is, I guess, what we've done this weekend. We've trekked out of the drab bleakness of Bristol. And if you left around the time that our car did, it was drab and bleak and wet and horrible. But then you climb to the top of a high peak in the countryside. You look out in the morning, out the various windows. Perhaps you've already been out for a bit of a stroll. And you look around in all directions and you see suddenly you're surrounded by lush greenery and life all around you, as far as the eye can see. It's like that. It's that new perspective that we've been given as Christians, having been raised with Christ out of the pit of sin and death. We've been raised out of the desperate, drab grayness of our former hopelessness. And ahead of us lies the return of Jesus and the promise that when Christ, who is our life, appears, verse 4, then we also will appear with him in glory. More on that this afternoon. But behind us, looking back, Paul tells us we've already died and been raised with Christ too. Our life, our new resurrection life, is already hidden with Christ in God. We've already been spiritually raised. So, but how do we respond? How should we respond to this amazing new landscape, this, this new vista of resurrection, past and future? Well, look again at verses 1 to 4. There are only two uh, instructions here, two overarching things that we're told to do to respond to this reality. And both of them actually essentially say the same thing. So verse 1, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And verse 2, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. So we're to set our minds and our sights on our new location. It's like we've been given brand new glasses to see the world and our lives and our present and our future 
in an entirely new and different way. Uh, it's, it's no illusion. It's more real than anything else we could fix our eyes on, this new reality of where we now are with Christ. But here's the problem. We've not yet had our, the, the, I guess, the spiritual equivalent of laser eye surgery to see it clearly and easily all of the time. That's another thing we're going to wait for in our future physical resurrection. One day we get new eyes and they'll actually work properly and we'll see reality as it really is. For the time being, our eyes are still a bit squiffy and we have to keep making an effort to put on the prescribed resurrection glasses to see things as they really now are. Uh, now, if you wear glasses, and maybe you wear glasses most of the time like me, you'll know that every morning you wake up, assuming you haven't gone to sleep in your glasses, that's just a bit uncomfortable, but in the morning you wake up and uh, your vision is just strained and blurry. And you can't tell if you've had a bad night or if it's just because you can't see, but it can make you feel like you're still half asleep or possibly even still dreaming. And you'll know if you wear glasses, you'll have to actually take the time to put them on again in order to see what's truly real and solid and right there in front of you. Or in my case, to work out which of my three children has just appeared in front of me at some unearthly hour. Glass. Oh, it's you again, okay. <laughs> Our new life in Christ is real and it's all around us, but we have to keep putting on these new glasses of seeking the things that are above in order to see our lives in their new and proper perspective. Only when we do that, with, with this new perspective in our eyes, will it inevitably lead us into, thirdly, new behaviour. So third heading for this morning, new behaviour. Carrying on in Colossians 3, look at, look at it from verse 5. Here's the new behaviour. Put to death, therefore... So in light of this new perspective, now put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Now, these verses are clearly something of like a, a call to arms by Paul to his Christian readers. He is calling them to action. And what we see here in this call to go to war on their sin is a few things. We see it's a comprehensive call. It's a command to put away a whole catalogue of sinful desires uh, and behaviours. We just read the list. We also see it's an effort-driven call. Clearly, these sinful traits that he's describing are, are far from neutralised in a Christian. Okay, the fact these things still exist in a Christian is not shocking or unusual. Paul wouldn't even have to talk about them if when you got saved, these things just disappeared from your life. No, there's no drifting on autopilot into a holy and transformed way of life. This is a call to forgiven Christians to live life every day in the trenches, fighting hard to put our remaining sin to death. And most importantly of all, it's a resurrection-powered call. And that's clear, isn't it, in, in nearly every one of the verses. You know, first of all, there's the 
Have a look again at the passage. There's the therefore in verse 5, which points back to verses 1 to 4. It tells us because we've been raised with Christ, therefore we ought now to put to death what is earthly in us. Uh, he says we don't battle sin. Um, where are we? Verse 7. Well, what he's saying is we don't battle sin in order to be transformed. Again, that would be like a corpse trying to tidy itself up. Can you imagine that? You, you sat there, I am sat in the doctor's perhaps, and he's telling me, actually, I've got to tell you, you're already a corpse, you're dead. Uh, and I go, uh, well, what if I comb my hair? What if I uh, wash my face? Would that help? Is this kind of that sort of idea. That's what it would be like to battle sin in order to be brought to life. As Christians, we battle sin because we've already been raised and transformed. Uh, you see it again in verse 7. In these sins you too once walked when you were living in them, but you're not living in them anymore, even though you might still be doing some of them. But now Paul's saying you have a new impetus and drive to put those sins away. Verse 9, seeing that you have already put off the old self with its practices and have, put, have already put on the new self. So let me, let me just sum it up like this. If you are a Christian here this morning, if you've put your trust in Jesus to be saved, you have been saved from the penalty and power of sin from which you could never by your own efforts have saved yourself. And here's what God tells you today if you've done that. If your trust is in Jesus, you have already put off the old self and put on the new which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. God says to you this morning, you have been spiritually resurrected. You have a new identity in Christ and you are in the process of being renewed. Now strive to live out who you already are in Christ. That's the message of the passage. That's the inevitable fruit of our having been spiritually raised. Uh, Romans 6 verse 11 puts it like this. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And that's because that's what you really are if you've been united to Jesus by faith. So if you've trusted in Christ, you are dead to sin. The New Testament is urging us. So live in light of that. Live that out. There used to be a programme on TV, and it might be that only Anne remembers this with me. Sorry, it wasn't that long ago, but still, we're at least 10 years older than most in the room. So uh, it was called What Not to Wear. Do you remember that? I'm not suggesting you like sat and watched it, but <laughs> I'm sure we have better things to do. Um, it's called What Not to Wear. It was with two presenters called Trini and Susanna. And one of their key slogans was, don't wear clothing that clashes with who you really are. Don't wear clothing that clashes with who you really are. And so they would say things like this, and I found this on one of their old websites. So this isn't my fashion advice. It is theirs. Uh, if you have a short or wide neck, <laughs> I'm not going to look at anyone, wear tops that are open at the neck rather than high or round ones to lengthen and slim your neck. If you have a double chin or your face is chubby, opt for longer earrings. If you have a short neck, Avoid large choker-style necklaces. If you have thick ankles, don't wear delicate strappy heels or ankle straps which cut across the ankle. This is, this is the stuff you're going to take home, isn't it? <laughs> if you have skinny legs, avoid thin teetering heels or they'll look like they're going to snap under the weight of your body. Well, Paul's message, although it might not be directed at our physical clothing, praise God, 
Still, it bears some surprising similarities. He's exhorting us, don't behave in a way that clashes with who you now really are, with who you've become now you've been raised with Christ. Don't keep wearing sexual immorality and, in, and impurity like they suit you. They don't. Don't keep putting on lies and slander and obscene talk like they fit you. They won't. Don't clothe yourselves in covetousness and envy as if material possessions make the real you. They really won't. But instead, put on Christ. Put on love and compassion, kindness, humility and purity. Put on Christ's character because your new life and destiny is already bound up with him. Because you're already a new creation in him. Because you've already put on the new self, which, uh, which happened when you were raised from spiritual death through him. Again, it's all about that raised with Christ reality, forming and shaping and fueling our new desires and behaviour. Our new life ought to lead to a new perspective, which in turn ought to lead to a whole new kind of behaviour. That's what we've seen so far. But here's the thing. This, this new battle, this war, to put off the old and put on the new, to behave like the new people Christ has already raised us to be, it's not easy, is it? In fact, it's really hard, and sometimes it's overwhelming. What do you think, what do you think day to day God's response is to seeing, as he looks down on us, that even though we have been pardoned and forgiven, and shown such grace and mercy, we still find it impossible in our own strength to change. What do you think God thinks? How does he feel as he sees our, what we might think of as failures? Do you think disappointment, disapproval, disowning us? Is that how he responds? No, none of those ways. He responds once more with mercy and his response is to give us new power. His response is to give us new power. That's our fourth and final heading this morning. Um, have a think for a moment about the storyline of the Old Testament, and I'll get you to share your answers with me, with, with me in a moment on this one. What was the most obvious missing element in the Old Testament? What was the thing that arguably led to Israel's greatest recurring problem? The, the fact that no matter how many times God rescued them and forgave them, they just kept on rebelling and turning against God again and again. What was the, what was the glaringly obvious missing element? Any ideas? Hard yes, yes, absolutely. Hard hearts. Anything else to go with that? Yeah, possibly lacked faith, yeah. Certainly fell back into sort of faithlessness, yeah. An unbelief, anything else? If they've got hard hearts, what do they need? New hearts. New hearts, yes. There we go. They needed, well, if we follow the storyline through, they needed the indwelling spirit in their hearts. They had no supernatural power within them. It's like trying to drive a car that's been so badly treated and wrecked that there's no longer any semblance of a working engine in there, but you're still sat at the wheel trying to drive the thing. 
And so each time God rescued them from sin and danger, they had no power within them to overcome their own wicked tendencies, their own hard hearts. God himself told them that they were a stiff-necked people. It wasn't enough that there were these dramatic rescues, as there are throughout the Old Testament. It wasn't enough that there were these blood sacrifices to atone for their sin, as gracious and as glorious as that was. And in the same way, it's not enough today for Jesus to only be a saviour who's able to remove the punishment due to us for our sin. Now that, that aspect of, of what he's done, his saving work, is absolutely central and essential. But we also need a saviour who can fix the problem of our hard and rebellious hearts. A saviour who can give us power from outside of ourselves to live changed and transformed lives. We need a saviour who can send the Holy Spirit to live within us. And so these promises begin to surface in the Old Testament as you read through it about a new covenant to come that God would make and establish. A covenant that dealt both with the people's need for forgiveness but also their need for change. And so Ezekiel 36, which is just one of those, there's, there's certain chapters in the Old Testament that are just really important. They stand up like little sort of mountain peaks, uh, important in the overarching plan of what God is doing to rescue a people for himself. And Ezekiel 36 is one of those. And here's the promise he makes in that chapter. Verse, Ezekiel 36, 25, he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your unclean." all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. So he's promising, he's going to make a way in the future that, that will be the cleansing, forgiving, sin-pardoning part of what we now know is God's rescue of us in Christ. But the, that promise didn't stop there. Verse 26 of Ezekiel 36, he says, And I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. John Piper describes all this as a newness that involves a cleansing from the old and a creation of the new. Now, God's Old Testament people could only dream of living long enough to see this promise fulfilled. They must, it must have just blown their minds and, uh, and um, uh, taken their imagination to breaking point to think, what, what on earth could this look like? God's spirit coming to live within us, new hearts. Uh, they were just longing for this day. But for us, living after Christ's death and resurrection, this hope has become a reality. The risen and ascended Jesus has poured out now his life-giving spirit into our hearts. He has put his spirit within us. So Romans 8 verse 9 to 11, Paul writes, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin... The spirit is life because of righteousness. So we have been set free from our old slave-like compulsion to sin. Though we do still sin, we're no longer enslaved to it. It's no longer our master. We're no longer its willing servants and soldiers. 
Sin can no longer just bark orders at us like some, uh, an old sergeant major. We have switched sides and found a true and better master. There is a new spiritual power within us, God the Holy Spirit. So what then about our ongoing battle with sin? What if we find ourselves here this morning deeply embroiled in a raging battle with our own sin? And let me tell you, if that sort of, uh, if those sort of, that sort of description rings true and you think, yep, that's me, you are not alone. I'm right there with you. And I think everybody, every other Christian in this room is as well. We find ourselves embroiled in this battle. What are we to make of that? Well, first of all, praise God. Praise God because corpses don't go to war and slaves in shackles are powerless to fight against their tyrannical masters. So if you are battling sin, if a particular repeated sin is troubling you and tempting you, even though you desperately want it gone, if you're experiencing painful trench warfare with both victories and losses, sometimes overcoming that sin, sometimes being overcome by it, then that battle itself is an amazingly encouraging sign that God's spirit really does dwell within you. Those still dead in their sins never truly battle to serve God and fight their own sin. But the Holy Spirit has raised us to new resurrection life so that we can and will begin to fight. Look at these words from uh, J.C. Ryle. Can I have the next one up, Ash? This is a very cool picture as well. I love these. Um, let's see if I can stand out of the way a little bit. Uh, this is, uh, oh, this is great, actually. You should check these out. There's a site called RefTunes, and this guy takes um, classic, uh, profound quotes from Christian authors of old and uh, draws some cool pictures to go with them. So uh, I love this one. So it says, a true Christian is one who has not only peace of conscience, but war within. He may be known by his warfare as well as by his peace. And this is J.C. Ryle in a, what, probably what is his most well-known, most classic book, Holiness. So it's a book on how to grow in holiness. And these are the words he writes. So what he's saying is, again, like we've just been seeing, the true Christian the one who has been raised to new life, what's going on inside him, in his heart, in his conscience, in his mind, is always these two things at once. There is a war going on within where we're battling, always ongoing with our sin nature. And there's also peace of conscience. Because of what Jesus has done for us and is doing within us, those two things always coexist in the Christian. Uh, maybe sometimes to sort of varying degrees. So we go, sometimes it's like, we're really enjoying the peace of conscience that uh, the cross brings us. Other times, we're not just battling our sin, but it's, it's sort of consuming our thoughts and is, is really intense. But these two things are always present in us. This is not an abnormal Christian. This is what a Christian looks like. So if this, is, if you can, if this rings true with you at all, there's any level of peace of conscience within you because of Christ's saving blood. But along with it, there is a a fight and a battle and it's grueling and it's hard so often to do to, to do battle with your sin that's a really good sign that you are a Christian that God's spirit dwells within you it's the Holy Spirit who awakens and empowers us as completely forgiven Christians to now want to do battle with our sin 
Not to save ourselves, but as those who have already been saved. Not to remove our condemnation, but as those for whom in Christ there is no more condemnation. Not as those who are dead in sin, but for those who have died in Christ to sin. We are not under law, but under grace. So let me just bring it all together. We had four, four headings, so let's kind of tie them together. How does a Christian do battle with sin? Well, first of all, by becoming a Christian, not just trying to behave like one. That's so important, isn't it? We need forgiveness and new spiritual life. That's the first thing we saw. We need that life to be breathed into us. Like the valley of dry bones in Ezekiel 37, we need to be raised, not by ourselves, but by God. And that only happens when we give up trying to save ourselves or make ourselves better. And when we instead throw ourselves on God's mercy and trust solely in Jesus and his saving work. So that's the first thing. We need new spiritual life. And if you're not a Christian yet, the first step, the, the only step you need to take is to go to Jesus, put your trust in him and be saved. He will then give you new spiritual life. But assuming we've done that, the second thing, we battle sin by adopting that whole new perspective, continually reminding ourselves that in Christ, we have already been raised to new life. And so setting our minds and hearts, our hopes and dreams and everything on things above, where even now our life is already hidden with Christ. One great tendency of our daily battle with sin is to, is to lower our gaze from Jesus, to lose sight of him and become fixated on ourselves again, despairing of what we see within. But that's not going to help us in our daily battle with sin, our battle to change, taking our eyes off Christ. It's not going to help. One of the most effective ways of dealing with sin in our lives is to keep our eyes fixed upwards on the risen Jesus and get an ever deepening picture of him in our minds and hearts. And maybe you've heard this famous quote from a man called Robert Murray McShane. He famously said, learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely. Such infinite majesty and yet such meekness and grace and all for sinners, even the chief, live much in the smiles of God, bask in his beams. So we need new life. We need to pursue that new perspective. Thirdly, we saw we were called to behave each day as the people Christ has remade us to be. Consider yourself dead to sin's power and alive to God in Christ. Remember, don't wear those old habits and behaviours that clash with who you now really are. Don't let sin reign in you anymore. Fourthly and finally, remember that the power to war with our sin isn't found in our own strength. It's only found in the new resurrection power of the Holy Spirit who dwells within. So don't despair or give up on the one hand. Don't be proud and self-confident on the other. Depend on the Spirit pray to him, keep in step with him, believe in his promise to help you daily with resurrection power to slay your sin. And let him remind you as often as you find yourself in the trenches doing hard battle with your sin, which, which is every single day, remember that there is, Romans 8 verse 1, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Let's pray.